When you think of these places, do you just want to smile? Raw almond forks, Huga House, raw Gimli, Manitoboggan, raw Churchill, Croca Curl, raw Wasagami. For many of us in Manitoba, they are the quintessence of delight, pleasure, and whimsy in architecture and design. These and many other projects are the initiatives of two Winnipeg designers. Today on episode 19, we explore their work in an episode called Whimsy. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. We're coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, the oldest and uh, coldest, or should I say coolest, Faculty of Architecture in Western Canada. This podcast is a collaboration between university faculty, students, graduates, and allies in design and architecture worldwide. Our guests today are both graduates of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. The whimsical people who join us today are designer Joe Kalternick, the director of Ox Projects. Hello, Joe Kalternick. Hi, how you doing? I'm great. And Liz Reeford, the principal landscape architect at Public City Architecture. Hello, Liz Reeford. Hi, Terry. I call this episode whimsy because your work brings me and thousands of others a sense of delight and pleasure and whimsy. I want to begin by asking you both, how consciously do you aim for those qualities in your designs? Liz, can I ask you that first? Sure. I I think that it's definitely part of our design methodology where we think about how important um, play almost as a design process is. I think that all through my career, it's been important for me to have fun in what I'm doing, but I think we call it serious fun uh, because we're pretty committed to having uh, fun and playing with what we do. And I think the result is some of those projects that you mentioned. Joe Kalternick, how consciously do you pursue those qualities in your designs? I think it's paramount to most of the work I do, which um, is to have a little bit of fun and a little bit of joy and almost add a little bit of childlike whimsy to it. I find the field can often be quite austere and quite serious. And as Liz said, it's it doesn't maybe take itself seriously fun as much. So I, I, I like to try to inject a lot of fun as much as I can. Joe, what tilted you in that direction first? I think maybe it's probably something innate. I have a, um, a sort of a rebellious streak. So when I, and I think when I notice some things are getting quite strict and austere, I tend to uh, veer towards the, the fun. Joe, in doing my research, I found that there was something in Madrid in 2011 that you saw that had right. quite a strong impact on you. What was that? Well, yeah, I was in Madrid in 2011 and we stayed uh, at the Plaza del Sol and um, it was right at the same time as the um, austerity protests. So every time we'd leave the hotel, we'd walk through their, their camp. And what really struck me was how they, they basically set up an entire city in this plaza. Uh, they had uh, little cantinas, they had a library, they had an infirmary. I was working on a similar project at the same time, pop-up gallery, and I, I started thinking about what else could be temporarily programmed in the city. And that's where through wanderings and through conversation, uh, the idea of food came up. And Liz, for you, what was it that made you begin to design in a playful way? Was there a moment? I don't know if there was a moment. I think I was probably leading up to it. I practiced in um, Australia and then Seattle before I started a landscape architecture firm in Winnipeg. 
And I think that the practice of landscape architecture was quite different in those places. It was sort of more valued, more integrated in the public realm, more necessary maybe, or in everybody's minds. And in Australia, definitely, there was a pretty strong sense of playfulness in what we were working on in the firm that I worked at. There was a lot of use of color and then maybe to a bit lesser degree uh, in Seattle. And I think when I moved back to Winnipeg and started a firm, I, I guess maybe a bit like Joe, I also tend to be somewhat rebellious and maybe just didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. And so, so maybe tried to find my own way into landscape architecture here. And a lot of that was starting with small projects like Huga House, where I could test out ideas and start small and build up, which I've been lucky enough to do over the past 10 to 12 years. So Joe, when you began, how did you come to define what the raw approach to design would be? To be quite honest, I have my own aesthetic, but oftentimes this really comes down to a budget and a material that fits a budget and a material like a process and how it gets put together. So I really focus on at the beginning. It was about uh, renting scaffolding because then I knew I can return it. So like, I used to be a scaffolding installer uh, years ago. And uh, so I knew that it had a lot of potential and I just let the, let the material do what it needs to do. There was a point in your Gimli Raw event where you borrowed lumber <laughs> from yeah. Rona. Is that right? Yeah. So one of my colleagues, uh, Chad Connery, we had partnered on this project and um, he had pitched the idea of this lumber. And right away, I just, all these projects are self-financed. I just saw a huge bill of having to buy uh, all this lumber. So I, uh, I pitched the project to Rona Gimli and they loved it. They thought it was a great project for the community. So um, they agreed as long as the material wasn't cut or damaged, they would return all the material. Cold outdoor settings are part of the work that both of you do. Why are those two features, Liz, so important? I guess it's what makes the place that we practice in unique. We talk about Winnipeg as being kind of exotic, actually, because there aren't really all that many people that experience what we experience. So if we can embrace that and find ways for people to go outside and be outside and come together and create social circumstances for people and ways for people to play, I guess, outside too in the winter, um, it's really a feat. I think a lot about um, if you could design something that's successful for people to get outside in the winter, summer is super easy. <laughs> so, um, you know, we start there, we um, try and think about winter first in um, our designs and don't think a lot of people do that. A lot of other places don't, you don't have to do that. Um, we're also pretty lucky that in Winnipeg, we have committed winters. So um, in places like Toronto, you kind of can't count on it being cold all, all winter. And so no one really invests in winter infrastructure or they do, but it's not necessarily going to stay frozen, say, all winter. And really, they just try and get through the winter. But here we can really embrace it. And there has been a huge change in how people are thinking about winter and kind of winter as a mindset, I think I've seen over the last 10 years. And so much of that has to do with warming huts and the skating trail at Raw Almond and all of the other amazing initiatives that Winnipeggers have um, taken upon themselves to create. Joe, for you, the idea of building outdoors with often unconventional reusable materials and serving food inside these structures, where did that uh, blending come from for you? Very similar to what Liz was saying. 
It always kind of bothered me that Winnipeg is a winter city, but for many, many years, it didn't really embrace it. When I pitched the project to Mandel years and years ago, that's it was uh, Mandel of, Hitzer from... Yeah, Mandel Hitzer from Deer and Almond. It was sort of front and center that it had to be in the winter. We didn't know what the ice was going to be the location at that time. But I, I just felt like Winnipeggers need to come out and get out and embrace the winter. It's half the year, so you might as well get out and, and enjoy. More, more than half the year. More than half, I know. <laughs> and Joe, what challenges did you run into in your very first uh, raw almond? <laughs> a lot. A lot. What kinds of things? city wasn't really ready for something like that. We found a lot of pushback from a lot of, I guess, call it stakeholders. And then just, I've never built anything on a frozen river at the time. So there was a lot of challenges, just trying to figure out how we're going to do this. I work very closely with John Reed, uh, my engineer. And um, so there's a lot of back and forth and trying to testing, a lot of testing to figure out what's going to work and how to satisfy all the requirements the city had at the time. Not a lot, a lot of construction workers worked outside in the winter. So, you know, they didn't really want to do it. So it was, it was tough, but it eventually got built. I understand on your first one, you had a little bit of trouble even getting the table to stand up properly. <laughs> Were you there? <laughs> I remember that. I foolishly built the table in uh, Peter Hargraves, the one who launched, the architect who launched uh, Warming Hots. I built it in his garage in pieces. When we put it together, it was almost a, a thousand pounds by the end of it. It was a lot of weight. Didn't realize that you can't really flip it uh, on the ice. It just kept sliding. So uh, yeah, I do remember actually the free press reporter helped uh, the photographer helped us flip the table, uh, including some of the patrons. And we figured out, we got it, and uh, we had the first meal. Yeah, no, I remember that. Liz, I visited Manitoboggan yesterday at St. Fatal Park. And for those who haven't had the pleasure of going there, describe it so we can get more people going. Okay. <laughs> this is going to sound crazy for people that don't live in Winnipeg and totally normal for people that live in Winnipeg. But uh, in Winnipeg, we don't have any hills, so we have to build them. Uh, the city actually builds uh, toboggan slide structures that you walk upstairs, bring your toboggan, and then slide down a, a slide um, and then kind of end up in an ice chute on a field. These are com completely regional structures. They don't really exist anywhere else. I think there is a toboggan slide in Quebec City, but there are most people just use hills. This toboggan slide is a combination of warming hut, double toboggan slide, and forest walkway at St. Vitale Park in Winnipeg. Uh, it has two toboggan slides, one at 12 feet high and one at 16 feet high. A warming hut uh, viewing area that also turns into a picnic shelter in summer, and it's bright pink inside. And a couple of upper viewing areas and also a ramp that winds its way through the forest up to the lower toboggan side, which is an accessible ramp, which makes Manitoboggan, we think, the first and only barrier-free toboggan slide in the world. So it actually allows people with mobility issues to get up to the top of the toboggan slide instead of using the stairs. And then it also allows parents to just pull kids up to the top of the toboggan slide instead of having to navigate stairs and toboggans and little kids and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a pretty unique project, actually. I was there yesterday and trying to figure out if someone arrives in a wheelchair, the ramp is slight enough that it's easy to get up to the top. But then how do you get down the slide? You wouldn't go down in your wheelchair, no. would you? <laughs> no, no, no. It's designed so that uh, you can easily transfer from a wheelchair to a toboggan. Mm -hmm. You kind of need to go with somebody, um, but you can easily get pulled back up to the top in a toboggan, or you could just stay on the toboggan the whole time and be sort of pulled up and down. 
Billy Bridges. He's an Olympic um, sledge hockey player. He was one of the first people to go down the toboggan slide, actually. He was able to move from the top to the bottom and back up again. And he went with his daughter and he said it was the first time he'd been able to go tobogganing more than sort of once in a row since he was six years old or something like that, since he was in a wheelchair. So that was really cool. And I hope more people have been able to enjoy it because of that. I spent a long time yesterday there talking to a mom and her two kids. They were about six and eight, and they were thrilled out of their minds, blasting down the chutes. And we (laughs) talked and they laughed and it was doing, I thought, I am so proud of what Liz Reeford has done here. It makes my city and the city for these people and so many others so much more appealing. Like, oh, that's it, so nice. Yeah. It's actually very fun, <laughs> like, and a little bit scary. And it's hard to believe that we're actually allowed to build those things, like that we got a permit to build it. <laughs> like, it always sort of blows my mind. But um, it's amazing that the city has those kinds of things and invests in that infrastructure and the ice shoots they make every year are amazing. And I think everybody's really proud of it. I know the park staff is proud of it. Every time I've gone there without even talking to people, I hear people saying how fun it is and how amazing it is and everything, which makes me really happy. So I was there with my very creaky 12 year old dog, Stella, (laughs) and I decided that I'm going to buy a uh, plastic sled and Stella and I are going to go down the chute because (laughs) she was watching what was going on. And her mobility is not that great, but the idea of blasting down the chute with me hugging Stella the Labradoodle on my sled really thrills me no end. I'm going back, definitely. I hope you get it on tape. (laughs) Send me the video. (laughs) Liz, we haven't talked yet about Croca Curl. Did you actually invent it? Uh, My office did, yeah. Yeah, our team invented Croca Curl, yeah. (laughs) Okay, for those who haven't seen it, what's Croca Curl? Okay, again, sounds crazy. (laughs) You might have to look it up if you don't know what I'm saying. Uh, But Croca Curl is the combination of curling and croconole which is a board game that's also popular regionally in canada it's played on an octagonal wood board that sits on a table and uh, the object of croconole is to flick chips into the middle of this board and um, get them as close to the hole in the middle as you can by knocking other players chips out of the way so Croca Curl is basically a, a very large scaled croconole board played on ice with curling rocks. Um, so we developed that in one summer in my office and spent a few weeks figuring out the rules and everything, drew it all up and um, I presented it to the force. I just had sort of a meeting about something else and I, and I said, this, hey, this is a good idea that we have. Can, uh, what do you think? Should we do it this year? And uh, they said, let us get back to you. And I think the next day they called and said, let's make this happen. So they totally embraced the idea. We That's made a few modifications good. to it. And, and then, yeah, it was built that winter up on the plaza at the Forks. And since then, I mean, actually the first day it was built, it sort of went viral across Canada. People were saying it's like the most Canadian thing that's ever happened in the world. It was on As It Happens. I've actually lost count where it's been built, but it's been built, um, I think, over 30 places across Canada. Uh, The first one in the United States was built this year uh, in Wisconsin. 
in Eau Claire and they just had a croak curl tournament over the weekend. And they are very excited about being the first place in the United States to have croak curl, even though they have no clue what croconol is, but they're like all over it. And I think even CNN was there or something. (laughs) It just reminds me, I have to say, about what you've done to get us not just outdoors, but outdoors and thrilled to be outdoors. Interesting to talk about all these things because not all of them, but a lot of these projects are really thanks to the Forks, which do really help people like us get ideas that we have out into the public realm. And um, without them, Coca Curl definitely wouldn't have happened. The support that they have of just like crazy ideas, let's do it and try it, and mm-hmm. and support local um, designers is quite amazing. And I think when I talk about it to other people in other places, uh, we're sort of the envy of a lot of them that we have that that way to get our ideas out. And the Forks is an amazing model and um, incubator, I think. Joe, a central feature to the success of raw and raw almond is the incorporation of fantastic food and fantastic Mm. chefs. From how far afield have your chefs come? Well, we had a chef from Iceland a couple times, mostly North America. Iceland, I think, is the furthest. We had plans with somebody from Tokyo um, and uh, some other parts of uh, Europe. And how have you managed to adapt to the preparation of food in such uh, unconventional buildings? I had never worked in a kitchen. Uh, It was a very steep learning curve uh, for both myself and my partner because he had never cooked on the ice. So it was, uh, you know, every year we adapt and we make changes and um, make improvements to the kitchen. It's like similar to a theater where it's almost more exciting what's going on in the back than what's going on in the front. It's a huge production. It's a very, very big production. Lots of orchestration to, like, you know, moving people and food around. We had last, I believe it was 32 guest chefs from across North America and one from Iceland. Logistics of getting them through the border, getting them through clearing customs, picking them up from the airport, all that kind of stuff, getting their food, like their prep list ready. It's a huge undertaking, but, um, and, and every year we just kept improving it. So it's, you know, the first year it was just, you just wing it with some buckets and some ice coolers, but uh, then you figure it out. Why were the other chefs so eager to take part? Uh, it's just, it's, it's an experience. So I think after our second year, we started getting some international press. And my uh, partner, Mandel Hitzer, he, he travels to different uh, cities on his off time and he meets these chefs and, and sort of like sings our praises and he signs them up and they're, they're eager and they're always happy to come here. They, they every time, the one thing that, and this is something I'm sure everybody's heard, but um, they always said they were the, the nicest people, like they're the nicest to deal with and the, the, the kindest people that they've dealt with. And uh, so that's something I, I kind of am proud of, hopefully a part of that experience. The raw approach for us as people who attended snuggle down together sit close, stay warm. COVID-19 doesn't like that kind of a setting. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Yeah. How has that affected you? Well, it's been canceled. So um, I've been watching the news and there's some people in different, uh, especially the States have been testing out different sort of like mini pods. And, you know, it was just something quite antithetical to the, the philosophy I had about raw almond, about sitting down at one table together. Not only was it about, you know, embracing winter, but I really wanted people to have to sit, you know, with, with strangers and meet new people. And I've met a lot of new friends at raw almond. So, so that, was, that was a big part of it, uh, just sharing a dinner at, at uh, a large table. Um, so the idea of doing these, uh, these tiny pods for two or four just didn't feel right. So we decided not to, to launch it this year. 
Liz, another outdoor adventure that we all thrill to is the warming huts. And if you walk down the stairs to the river trail, the first thing you see is your luminescent Huga warming hut. Tell us about that for those who haven't seen it. Sure. Um, Huga hut um, was designed by uh, my office and Urban Inc. and Pike Projects. It was a collaboration. We knew that we wanted to design something that um, revolved around the concept of huga, which is sort of translated as cozy or something like that, um, and tried to figure out a way for it to be meaningful in Canada. Like, what does huga mean in Canada? We know what it means in Scandinavia, I think, but we thought um, it had to be a, a cabin, just like a quintessential Canadian cabin. But we decided to cut it in half and paint it fluorescent yellow. <laughs> so, um, we did that. <laughs> we built it. We proposed it, won the competition um, and built it. We, we called it Huga House and think that maybe one of the reasons we won is because the organizers thought we were a team from Denmark. <laughs> but surprise, we were from Winnipeg. <laughs> and um, so we, we filled this hut with stuff we salvaged. We spent weeks going to thrift stores and got donations of things like um, stuffed fish and antlers and birds and stuff to put on the walls and um you know rocking chairs and plates and just and actually a crokinole board um which is sort of where croco curl started from um and you painted them all the same color what how do all the same color. you describe this color it's a luminescent i would say fluorescent or like highlighter yellow it reads as green sometimes if the snow is very blue and then it can also be really yellow, but it, it's sort of, it's almost blinding, but amazing to be in there because it's all things that, you know, it's all like very familiar items in the cabin. It feels like you're in a cabin, although it's cut in half, but everything is this sort of like amazing color. And it makes you kind of, I think it makes you see the context, like the place that you're in when you're looking out from it, it makes you see it a little bit different. It frames the place that we're in, which is this amazing frozen river trail. And then it also makes you think about the places we inhabit maybe a little bit differently when it's all the same color and all this kind of like mind blowing color. Like you painted everything in the cabin, everything. that same color, like absolutely Every everything. <laughs> yeah. And a funny story about that is that it, it, um, was so iconic that actually someone once, I think the first or second year stole the rocking chair that was in there, but stupidly brought it up to their apartment um, yeah, that. balcony that was actually facing the river. And yeah. everyone going past on the skating trail was like, hold on a second. Why is that yeah. rocking chair up on that balcony? And that's Hugo's rocking chair and actually called the police and the police went and got the rocking chair and brought it back to the forks. <laughs> In what way has COVID-19 affected your practice? It's actually been pretty interesting. Uh, we've had a lot, I would say maybe more interest in the kind of work that we're doing because we're, we do a lot of work kind of developing unconventional public spaces. And I think there's been a real um, desire to start to do that more. Croca Curl has blown up this year again. It had sort of a resurgence because it was an activity that was allowed to happen this winter because you could be distanced and play it. So that was unintentional, but kind of a, a something that has happened this winter. And then we've also been involved in a few, two 
projects in Calgary um, that are about redefining um, what parks can be in um, parking lots. So now parking lots are a little bit less used. People aren't going to the commercial centers as much. And so there's sort of these leftover parking spaces um, and that could be used for amazing public open spaces. And it, especially in neighborhoods that are quite dense and uh, people maybe live in condos and the parks were full over the summer. And so people were looking for more places to be together and apart. Um, and so, so actually we've seen a little bit of opportunity in what's happening now. And I really actually hope it and think it will continue where there's a little bit more public spaces are maybe seen as a bit more valuable than they were. Joe, in the absence of uh, raw, how have you been paying the bills? <laughs> Whatever way I can. Um, it's sort of, it's a very, it's good. It's humbling. It's a very humbling experience for me this, this past year. Uh, you know, I just, I, I was, um, I started as, in, as a construction worker. So, you know, over the years I fall back on it. And uh, so I've been doing some contract work and, uh, you know, and it's been good. I can't complain. It's paid the bills. It's I had some debt and it's paid that down. So, you know, throughout the time, it, it's one of those things. It's like when you don't have it, you know, cause sometimes you get engrossed in a project and it can get quite, um, you can get fed up with it. So it's been a nice way of reminding me like the positive things about uh, raw almond and all those projects. Cause they're, yeah, they're, they're not easy. They're stressful, but they're, they're very fulfilling. So it's going to give me some, some time to think, some time to think about how I'd like to approach uh, the next sort of phase of my practice. Will raw come back? Uh, it's yet to be seen. Uh, I think so. Uh, I'm not sure in what form we, I think we're We're both ready to sort of reinvent it take maybe all the the best things about it and try to augment them or you know mandel's in the restaurant industry which is a very it's been hit really hard with covid so i'm just hoping that yeah once this clears up um i'm hoping everything kind of can fall back in place for him and then uh, we can figure out the next game uh, liz i have to ask you before you go as of late january you are now the co-executive director of storefront manitoba with your practice partner at Public City Architecture, Peter Sampson. What are your plans for Storefront Manitoba? We're just starting out and trying to kind of get our bearings. We obviously have very big shoes to fill, uh, taking over from David Penner. We are very excited to be in this position. We think that there's so much opportunity. This is a very weird year uh, for many reasons to be sort of taking over these this position. Obviously, a lot of events that we normally would have are postponed probably for another year. And right now we're trying to find ways to um, pivot a little bit and make sure that we can still have presence and um, be valuable as um, advocates for the design professions in Manitoba. And um, I think we're rethinking a few things and uh, just trying to be relevant, I think, over the next little while. It's, it's tricky. A lot of storefronts work has been event-based and when you can't have events, what do you do? So, you know, it's a good design project. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us on Prairie Design Lab. And thanks for the joy that you bring to Winnipeg life. And I'm so grateful that you spent some time with us today. Joe, I know you have another Zoom call to get to shortly. Yeah, so I'll yeah. let you go. Liz, thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Look forward to seeing what you both do next. You've made this city so much more an appealing place. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, bye for now. Bye. Bye.